0: I'd ask you you to turn with me to John chapter five. We're going to look at John chapter five this morning as we continue on. and And John and I pray that God would help us to see and savor Jesus Christ and answer prayers that Pastor Mike just prayed before I read from. John 5, I want to remind us, though, we celebrate at Christmas the birth of Jesus Christ. We must always remember that the birth of Jesus Christ was not the beginning of Jesus Christ, because we were reminded at the beginning of this apost- or this epi- this letter, not letter, this gospel, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning, in Christ. Before creation, before anything was, in the beginning was the word. He was already there, and he was with God, and he was God. All things were made through him, and without him, not one thing was made. And in Jesus is life, and in him, the life and light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to his own, it says, and his own did not receive him, but those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as the only Son of God, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, that we this morning would see His glory. May we see for our salvation and for our imitation. I want to tell you where we're going to go this morning as we go through this long chapter that is in some ways one unit. I guess you could divide it into two units in one sense. You have verses 1 through, oh, about 14, 13, 14. It's the story of Jesus healing a man and some interaction with the Jews. But this whole chapter really is all together because the second half of this chapter is Jesus answering them, and I want to just bring them all together. But I want us to, one, walk through the chapter and see how it fits, and then seek Jesus. Christ is our, our great need. Great Christ as the one who meets our great need. He is our Savior. So let's look at this. I, one of my favorite novels ever is Lee Harper's To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know if you've read that story. The movie's okay. Gregory Peck, it's good. The book is awesome. And it's a story about a family, about a dad who's a widower and is Two young kids, and you hear it from these kids' perspective, and it's, it's a great story, and that interaction is great in and of itself. But traced throughout this story is a trial, a court case with, that reveals a system of injustice. Something is messed up with the system of justice, and you see it in this book. Well, we find that true in this chapter I want us to read this chapter through that lens, and so we begin with seeing the crime of Jesus. Let's look at verses one through fifteen and see the crime of Jesus. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well or do you want to get healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Some versions or old manuscripts had a verse, verse 4, that speaks about how the the, the thought at the time was they would gather around this pool, and an angel would come and stir the water, and the first one to get in there would get healed. The Bible doesn't say he's going to do that. There is no... Record of that, that was the legend told. This man believed that's what would happen, and he couldn't get in. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day, here's the crime. Now that day was the Sabbath. Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed Did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, or you have become well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Do you see the crime? Jesus, the Son of God, comes onto the scene in the middle of invalids and paralyzed and lame. He comes to them and in grace has mercy upon this man, this man who is focused on some, maybe some superstitious idea of how God would heal him, thinking that some power was in this pool and instead, Jesus interrupts him, comes to him, asks him a few questions, and with his very word, heals him. And the Jews are so bent out of shape, and they're so focused on not this man who was healed after 38 years of being basically invalid and paralyzed. They can't get over the fact that he got up and took his bed, and he walked on the Sabbath, because by this time, there was in the Mishnah, which was this document that described the Old Testament law, 39 articles that say these are things you must not do in order that you keep the commandment, you shall keep the Lord's day, the Sabbath, and keep it holy. Not in the Bible, these things, but added to the Bible, and they're focused on this. Here's the crime. You broke the Sabbath. And the man says... He, made, he told me to do it. And they say, who is this man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? And he says, I don't know what his name is. Now let's move on. And so that's the crime. Let's look at the prosecution that takes place. 16 through 18. And this is why the Jews were persecuting. We could also say prosecuting. But persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. They say, you have the right to remain silent. Because anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Jesus doesn't remain silent. And do you know what Jesus does? He says things. Oh, he knows better. He knows He knows best, and he knows what he's doing. He says things not to get him off the hook from these Jews. He says true things to reveal their hearts and to get himself into bigger trouble with the Jews. Look at what he says. Listen to what he says. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working Okay, if you dig into there and ponder it for a minute, basically what Jesus is saying as they're persecuting him, hey, they're saying to him, you're working on the Sabbath. You're doing these things. You're violating the law. And Jesus says, we all know that even though the Father, when he created the world, he rested on the seventh day, in some ways it was figurative because he doesn't stop working he is always watching over the world he is always caring he doesn't sit back and take a vacation on the seventh day he is always working and so it is with me and they sit back and they go did he did i hear that right is he just saying he's one with the father he has the same rights as god the father he's working on the sabbath like god yahweh does Did I hear that right? Jesus is doing signs and miracles. He's growing in popularity. But when he talks, he gets in trouble. The miracles are causing Jesus to rise. If he was a politician, Jesus is rising in the polls when he does his miracles. But you're going to find in the Gospel of John, the more he talks... He plummets in the polls because that talk, that teaching, reveal as he tells them who he really is, they start to realize they're going to be called to an account. There is somebody here on the scene that brings in a type of accountability to me that I do not like and is going to change my system. God works on the Sabbath, Jesus basically says, and so do I. And he claims equality with God. And the Jews, by the end of this, part of this prosecution of Jesus and his crime of working on the Sabbath, they're not now frustrated at the fact that he violated these laws on the Sabbath. They're now mad. They're saying, it's blasphemy. And he should be put to death. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, here's the thing is, in this time, the Jews did not ordinarily refer to God as their father in an individual sort of way. A a believing Jew wouldn't say, our father in heaven. He wouldn't pray that. He would say... As a corporate nation, they would say, God is our Father, but they would not have the boldness or the prerogative to say, God, Yahweh, is my Father. In saying this, they realized that Jesus, being the Son of God, as He claims to be, He is making himself equal with God. And now we find from verses 19 to the end of the chapter, a lot of verses, a lot of black ink or red ink, depending on if you have a red letter edition, of you have a lot of conversation going on. And what's happening is Jesus defends himself. He gives a defense against the prosecution for his crime and what he's doing, both his claim about being one with the Father and is working not so much on the Sabbath, and what he does is he explains his equality claims. He's equal with the Father. Let's look at 19. I'm gonna read through this pretty quickly. And from 19 to 30, he says, I wanna explain how I can say that I'm equal with the Father. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do nothing of his own accord, but only what he Sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will be shown to Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills, for the Father judges no one but has given all his judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and the Son of God he will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear it will live for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given to him authority to execute judgment and because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and who and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I know there's a lot of verses there and it's a lot of sermons that could be preached on there. And I just want you to see what he's seeing here, what he is responding to to the Jews and probably the Pharisees. And he's saying to them, Jesus and the Father are one. And I would say they're one God, and there's an intimacy and in relationship. And it's a relationship between a father and a son, an apprentice relationship. And the father initiates and sends and commands and commissions and grants. And I, the son, respond and obey, and I perform the, God, the father's will, and I receive my authority from him. And there's this, this special dynamic going on, and yet we are equal in the Godhead Hard to understand how does this happen, and it's happened in a love relationship. The Father loves the Son, and in loving the Son, He overflows and loves the world. He's giving sovereignty to the Son and to His judgment as He acts as God and man on earth. Jesus is God's agent to the world, in, in Old Testament times, in, in the ancient times, a king would assign an agent to do his business for him in another land. He was like an ambassador. And the agent would fully represent the king. The agent's words would become binding to his audience on the, based on what the king has sent him to do. Whoever would honor that agent would honor the king. And he says... I am such. Whoever honors the Son honors the Father. Whoever honors the Father will honor the Son. A lot, Oh, that we would just... We're going to come back to a, a, a phrase or verse here or there in this, but it, oh, that God would help us to see the glory of Jesus here. And then what he says in verses 31 through 40, so look with me at verse 31. He He then shares with us, he says, now, like like a crime, like a courtroom case, he says Jesus is defending himself against the prosecution of blasphemy. You're saying I'm blaspheming. You're saying I don't have the right to be considered equal with or with my father as we are working on the Sabbath. Let me give you five witnesses. A good defense lawyer gives witnesses. He gives at least five of them. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to me John. There's there's one witness, John. He is born, that's John the Baptist. He's born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing to rejoice for a little while, a while for this light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So he was saying, John is a witness to say that I'm different. And then he moves on. But the testimony that I have is greater than John. For the works, there's, there's witness number two. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that i'm doing healing the lame turning water into wine raising the sick man's the man's sick son last chapter keeping him from dying the works that the father has given me to accomplish these very works that i'm doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me in verse 37 here's another witness the father Who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you did not believe the one whom he sent. I think there might be also realizing, but there was a voice that was heard, and some of us heard it. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased in his baptism. Look at verse thirty-nine. You search the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. There's another, there's number four witness. John works the father scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me. And we could skip to the last witness. He says in verse 45, Moses, the one that you set your hope on. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote of me. Jesus is giving a defense of his claim of equality with God, the Father. At the end here, look at verses 41 through 45. Jesus then turns the table on the prosecution. That's like he's saying they're prosecuting him and saying, You're guilty. Jesus is the defendant. And Jesus turns it on them and says, No. You're actually the guilty one. Look at verse 41. And I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How do you believe when you receive glory from another, one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What we find Jesus doing, in short, is he's saying, turns it on them and says, it's because you have a spiritual sickness. If you don't see these things, A man from 38 years, lame and invalid at this pool, and I heal him. And all you can focus on is the Sabbath. And if you don't see that God has testified that I am from him, the Father, if you don't see these witnesses, there's something really wrong with you. You have a spiritual sickness and it's not with your mind in understanding these things. It's with your heart. You do not want to understand them. You want to go your own way. You want your own glory. And frankly, this is the way we actually are as we come to God apart from him healing us. We want to go our own way. We're blind to what he has done. He, it's all over. We could see all over in front of us. We could see in this word and he does this in our lives and we should see his work. He says, there is no knowledge, no love for God, verse 42. They are seeking their own glory. Now, what I want to do in the remainder of this message is just, just like, as the preacher go, I want to point out and say, look at this with me. You need this, I need this. Praise God, help me to rejoice in this, trust in this, and imitate this. I want to show you four things about Jesus that you need Four glorious, I, I call four glories of Jesus, for our salvation, and I want to say our imitation. There's four things every person needs in this chapter. We desperately need eternal life, and we need to imitate what Jesus has done for us. The Jews said to this healed, 38-year invalid who is now healed and walking. And by the way, we're not going to spend time on this. If you were to dig into this chapter, you'd actually see that this man doesn't seem very repentant. He's kind of a whiner. He gets healed. I don't know. Somebody else did it. He told me to walk. I mean, if you you compare that to chapter nine, when Jesus heals a blind man, and the blind man gives one of the most glorious and beautiful testimonies, and he rebukes the Pharisees who are attacking Jesus again. Compare chapter 5 to chapter 9. This man, I don't know who he is. And finally, when he does, Jesus comes to him and says, see that you don't sin anymore. Okay. But in this, in this chapter, we see some glories of Jesus. We see the glory of Jesus' gracious initiative and his powerful word and his unjust rejection and his dependent obedience. Let me, let me start with the first one. Would you look at, with me, Faith Church, would we just together hover over the word and, de- and just glory in Jesus's gracious initiative for sinners and sufferers? We see it all over the Bible, but we see it in this passage. Jesus' glorious initiative. That word just means he takes the first move. He goes after it. He takes responsibility. He's not passive. He is active. And do you see the glory of Jesus doing that? I need Jesus to come and take the initiative in my life. You need Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you desperately need Jesus to come in and rescue you, just like this invalid, 38 years, sitting there with no hope of getting healing, needed Jesus to take the initiative. Now, we see other stories where they come and seek Jesus out. Now, ultimately, because they heard his testimony, they heard the fame of Jesus. In this story, Jesus shows us he goes after Jesus sinners and sufferers. It says in this passage, verse 3 of John 5, in these, this part of Jerusalem, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, I just want you to note who he comes to, or where, first of all, where he goes. Jesus does in Jerusalem, doesn't go to the temple first where all of the popular people are, where all the royals would have been, where all the religious elite would have been, where he could get his accolades and his praise. He would get recognition. He doesn't go there. He goes to the sick part of the place. He knows there are sufferers there, and he meets them there. I'm so thankful that that, I mean, Christmas reminds of this this of us. As Jesus has come, and he didn't come in a royal palace, but he came in a manger with shepherds and with poverty. Jesus comes, and he came in this story, taking the initiative, and he goes to the pain. He goes to the misery. And note who he comes to. It was a man that was there who had been invalid for 38 years. He's lying there. He knew he was there, and Jesus was, knew that he was there, and he knew that he was lying there for 38 years, a long time. Jesus knew and took the initiative. And notice when, when he comes. Jesus is not, Jesus is not, didn't get his calendar wrong and go, oh, I just lost track of time that it was the Sabbath. Jesus knows it's the Sabbath. And I think John is putting the story in here to highlight this opposition that's gonna take place. And Jesus finds him here and he goes after them. Friends, think about your rescue from Jesus. Think of Jesus' salvation of you. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus came and died for you. Jesus came to rescue you. You may have heard the message from your mom or from a Sunday school teacher, or from Vacation Bible School, or from Billy Graham, or from a camp, or a preacher, or for someone in this room. I'm not sure where you heard it, but if you received Jesus Christ, it's because a message came to you, and it came to you because Jesus took the initiative in preparing your heart so you would hear it and receive it. Jesus always makes the first move in our lives. He always does, and we praise God for him. That is our great need. Jesus takes initiative, and that is what happens in this story. Oh, may we just praise him for it. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that it could be that this morning, and if you have not received him, it is Jesus taking the initiative to call you, to wake you up to the glory of who he is, and for you to you either respond to him by un- not believing it, Or believing it and receiving him. Receiving him as king. He takes initiative. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's initiative. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's initiative. He comes to sufferers, this man. He comes to sinners. We see this man is probably afflicted because of his sin in this story. John chapter 9, he's not afflicted from sin just for the glory of God. We are saved because of Christ's initiative and we rejoice. And I want you to just ponder the glory of this reality. As you go this week, this Advent season, something can happen in your life. I just I'm encouraged by this that no matter what's happening in my life, I can re- realize I have a Christ, I have a Savior who takes initi- the initiative. He takes he takes the first move. He goes after me. He moves towards me. That's the kind of Jesus that I I have received and loves me, and I have grown to love and receive. Oh, that this Christmas season we would. Rejoice in that, and would we imitate that? You and I, as Christians, are Jesus' representatives. As Jesus took initiative for sufferers and sinners, would we do that? Who in your life is a sinner or sufferer? Everybody, just like you. Who needs somebody to take initiative, to pray for, care for, go after? Who's going to do it but Jesus' followers who are his representative, his, can I say, body in the world? May God help us to rejoice in that. And secondly, oh, we desperately need God's powerful word. We need Jesus' powerful voice and word in our lives. You see that in this? I want you to see the glory of Jesus' powerful word for sinners and sufferers. I need it. You need it. If you were to ponder this, look at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Starts with a question. His first words are a question to see where this invalid really is. This man wasn't looking to God's personal healing, but some superstition. And yet we see the powerful working of Jesus in his question. He gives then a healing command, get up. It's a command. Take up your bed, another command, walk. And he gives him the power to do that which he commands him to do. Jesus' voice is on display. Jesus' words are on display in this. And do you notice how they're so fixated? Who, who is this man who said take up your bed. Who is this man who said this? Who is this man who said this? Friends, we are saved because Jesus said something, because Jesus speaks, because Jesus's word and words in the past and present are absolutely powerful. We're going to see this in this book. As you keep reading in John, you'll get to John chapter 11, the famous story of the man that Jesus heals, his friend Lazarus. He heals Lazarus after being in a tomb for four days and Jesus comes out of the tomb. Jesus comes up to the tomb, looks at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. How did he come out? Well, it says here, he cried with a loud voice, Jesus did, but it was Jesus' voice. Jesus' voice said, Lazarus, come out. And it says, the man had died, had come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. His face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. I once heard a story of a man, a teacher was teaching a class of kids and said to the kids, kids, why did Jesus say Lazarus come forth? And one boy full of faith raises his hand and says, so that all the other people wouldn't come out of the graves too. You can think on that for a minute. He so believed if Jesus says with his powerful voice in a cemetery, come out, unless he defines and says Lazarus, come out, everybody will come out. Because Jesus, and Jesus says this as he's defending his authority. Look with me at verse 24 of chapter five, John 5, 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Whoever believes the Father truly and hears my words has eternal life. To believe in the one who sent me and to hear my words and receive them is the same thing. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I say to you truly, truly, an hour is coming that those who will hear will live. He says, I said, he says it. He says, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. A quarter of a mile from here is a cemetery with our loved ones, your loved ones. There's going to come a day... When the voice of the Lord, the son of God will speak and those in the tombs will rise to judgment and to rejoicing. It says here to the resurrection of life and to judgment and hell. Jesus's voice, behold that. At Christmas season, there is nothing more glorious and more beautiful and more powerful and more important than the voice of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's in His Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Oh, it is, we would love for you more than anything to hear and know this Word that you might hear Christ. Declare who He is. Show who He is that you would believe that He really is the Son of God and that you would believe in Him. We absolutely need the voice. We absolutely need the Word, the powerful Word of Christ. Have you received it? Think about how He has saved you. Think about what He has done in your life. Do you, do you believe that this, this week you may be going through stress, anxiety, anxiety, frustrations and anger and hurts. But if you're God's child, you have a Jesus who has taken initiative in your life and you have a Jesus who speaks and one word can defeat all your enemies, who comes and can bring cheer to you in just just one word of his grace. Look to the one whose powerful word gave you salvation. And take that word to others. It is not you or I that is going to be able to package the good news of Jesus to someone else that doesn't right now believe him. And all of a sudden flip it and change their mind. We're not good enough. We're not good enough. I'm not a good enough presenter to make that happen. But the powerful word of Jesus does. And oh, may we share it with others. May we share the message of Jesus with others. His voice speaks through his message and changes lives. And we see the glory of Jesus in this passage through his voice. That is so powerful. And thirdly, I want you to see the glory of Jesus's unjust rejection. We see this in all of this. We see this in the entire section now from chapter 5 into chapter 8. Jesus is getting rejected and rejected and rejected, and it's all unjust. It's not fair. It's not right. And that, isn't that just a picture of what happens with Jesus and his life and his death? Jesus comes in order to be unjustly arrested, betrayed, killed, crucified, tortured, and then crucified, for the justification of guilty sinners. We find this story. He tells him to take up his bed and walk and he gets accused of breaking the law. Then he gets accused of blasphemy because their hearts were wicked, because they loved the glory of man. You see, we absolutely need the unjust rejection of Jesus. I praise God for the unjust rejection of Jesus. Not because it was good or beautiful in and of itself. It was horrible. It was treachery. But it was really our treachery. It was because of our rebellion against God. Jesus Christ was unjustly slandered and humanly destroyed. But raised from the dead for our sins Behold the glory. This is something that God calls us to embrace. If you've never received Christ, that's how you get saved. You somehow believe that Jesus actually was unjustly treated for you in order that he would pay for your sins and he offers you forgiveness and acceptance with God forever with all of your sins being removed and you have no longer a guilt to bear before God. While you are weak, at the right time, Jesus got, died for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, so much more are we reconciled. The last thing I want you to see is Jesus' dependent obedience. Maybe that's how we end this sermon today, the dependent obedience. I could point you to these words when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I'm working Jesus says to them, I can't do anything of my own accord, but when I see the Father working, I'm working. At the end of this section, he says that I, I only do what the Father gives me to do. Jesus showed us the way. Jesus' absolute obedience to the Father was for our salvation, was for our good, for your good. Jesus comes and saves in obedience to the Father this is something that we are called to imitate. Jesus was the true perfect man, the human being who completely depended on God. Showed us that he doesn't depend on himself even though he was God, and he shows us how we are to live our lives. We are to live as messengers of this great God who speaks and changes everything, who comes to the worst of people and initiates and takes the first move and we are to follow independence on him. I, I come into this message and I go out of this message saying, Father, unless you use your word, I can't do anything apart from your grace. You sitting here in this room cannot respond in obedience to the word of God. What do you, how do you respond in obedience today? Well, you, you, you realize he initiated things for you. He made the first move and you respond in love and you respond in loving other people in the same way. How do you obey this message? You hear, you're reminded that his voice is so powerful and you just once again believe it and you apply it all week when you go through troubles and you go, oh, but his voice can remove all my troubles. I look to him. He has saved me. And it is so powerful. It is the greatest need of my friend and neighbor or family member without him. And so I must bring that word, that powerful word. That's how you obey this message. And how do you obey this message? When you think about how unjustly he was treated for your good, a sinner and a sufferer. Oh, you cherish the fact and trust that he did pay for it all. And you are willing to sacrifice and be treated unjustly for others in order that they might know this loving grace. But none of this can happen, apart from us realizing, we're just too bad for us to do any of those things. We're just too bad to obey this kind of word. It's too hard for us. All of the Bible's too hard for us. It's impossible for sinners with dead hearts to do. And yet... He speaks commands and gives the power to obey by his Holy Spirit. We depend on him. We get on our knees daily and we seek him and we trust him. Oh, faith church, oh, visitor who needs Christ and has not received him yet. Would you receive him? He speaks through his word and he uses his messengers. He speaks that you might Live and obey and follow and be free in in the call to treasure him and show him to others. I'm going to invite the worship team. We're going to end with the song of beholding him. May we behold him. May we respond by beholding him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to conclude with prayer. Oh God, I pray that I would trust you in this. That we would trust you in this. I pray that the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ would speak in this room, would speak the truth of forgiveness, of judgment, and bring conviction. I pray that it would bring the voice of seeing that we have a great need and how could we ever live without dependence on Jesus. Oh God, I pray that you would please, please work, please speak. You know, God, cause our hearts to treasure. Help us to see and savor Jesus Christ. Even as we conclude with this song, may we sing it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.